I'm going to read uh, from a couple of passages this morning for the sermon from uh, Acts chapter 2 and also Mark chapter 10. And this is, uh, this will be part 2 of uh, thinking about baptism last week and this week as well. And this week we get to do that in the context of uh, celebrating the sacrament of baptism in our, in our worship as well. Uh, so just a few verses from each of these uh, passages. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. This is God's holy infallible word. Uh, Peter is preaching here at Pentecost. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And then back to Mark Chapter 10, just verses 13 and 14, it says they were bringing children to him so that he, he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the, children, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Our topic this morning, and thinking about baptism, is, is who should be baptized uh, and why. Uh, considering the promises of God, uh, particularly to families, uh, who should be baptized. And of course, there's no small disagreement among brothers and sisters in Christ um, about at least part of the answer to this question. Uh, as part of the reason we, we uh, need to consider it. Uh, all Christians agree that, that converts to Christianity are to be baptized. Um, and then many believe that the Bible requires the children of believers also to be baptized. Uh, many others uh, would say that only those who make uh, an adult or a mature profession of faith uh, in Christ uh, are to be baptized at that point. In, in, other, in other words, they would say that baptizing a, a child or especially an infant um, is, is not what the Bible uh, calls for. Um, and, and so to, to join a, a, a church uh, with that view, if you were baptized as an infant, you'd have to be rebaptized, right? You'd have to consider that your baptism was not uh, actually effectual. Uh, recently, I used the illustration of uh, the elephant and five blind men uh, examining the elephant and coming to different conclusions because they were all uh, touching a different part of the elephant, uh, different conclusions about what it was like. And it finishes with the moral that you have to see the whole to understand the parts uh, and how they relate to the whole. Well, to understand why the Bible requires the children of believers uh, to, to receive the sign of baptism as well relates to that story of the elephant. Because we, I have to see the whole picture, the whole story, to understand this, this issue well. Uh, to see the Bible as, as one book, as one, one unfolding story uh, of God's plan of salvation. 
Um, it's not an easy, it's not a question that's understood well by, by proof texting, that is by, by pulling a few verses out here and there uh, from the Bible. Um, it's not understood well by focusing uh, only on the New Testament uh, as well. Um, a basic premise of Reformed theology, of covenant theology, uh, is uh, that there is significant continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Certainly there are, there are significant differences in the way that God related to his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, but the understanding is that there is one covenant that flows through the whole Bible, the covenant of grace, um, uh, through the whole story of God's um, salvation, one story of salvation. So we need to see that. We need to understand the Old Testament uh, as well to understand um, this question. Otherwise, uh, I, I would I would readily admit I think many would that you know some verses pulled from here and there in the New Testament can sound convincing um, that maybe we should only baptize uh, adult uh, adult believers. Um, so we need to see the organic nature of God's revelation. We need to think holistically uh, about the Bible, about theology, to understand uh, this question. If you look up. The word holistic in the dictionary, you get something like this, uh, characterized by comprehension of the parts of something as intimately interconnected and explicable only by reference to the whole. And, and really, we need to ask about any issue in Scripture, any part of Scripture, how does this relate to the whole? Right? How does this relate to God's covenant, the story of his covenant all the way through the Bible and, and, and his promises? And I think when you do that, um, that the, the understanding that baptism includes our children, it includes families, flows uh, easily and readily from that. So my hope this morning is that you'll be led to greater praise of God for praise to God for His promises um, and blessings on families, uh, on families. Well, the first point I want to point us to this morning, as you'll see on your outline there, is that baptism replaces circumcision as the sign of God's covenant. Baptism replaces circumcision. I want to say first, too, that the reality is, and, and one of the main reasons for the difference of opinion among Christians on this question of who should be baptized, is that the New Testament doesn't deal with that question explicitly. Right? Not, not explicitly in the way we might hope, or, or in, a, in a sort of textbook way, with a clear, explicit statement um, about should children be baptized. It doesn't explicitly forbid that. It doesn't explicitly uh, prescribe that. But I think the reason for that, and, and this is key, and, and to sort of state the conclusion up front here, the reason for that is that the New Testament is assuming the practice uh, of including our children in baptism. Clearly, the New Testament is assuming something, right? Because the question isn't addressed clearly. Uh, the New Testament is assuming uh, the baptizing of, of children and infants. And the biggest reason for that is the parallel between circumcision and baptism. Uh, what was true of circumcision as a sign of God's covenant that he gave to his people um, is also true of baptism. So let's think about what circumcision was, just for a few minutes here. Um, it was instituted with Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 17. And there's no dispute uh, that God gave that sign of his covenant to uh, infants as well. That, that was God's command in, in Genesis 17. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, uh, God said to Abraham. 
Uh, circumcision was uh, given to them as a sign of the covenant. It wasn't a sign of, uh, it wasn't a mark of race or nationality, and sometimes people suppose that this is what marked them as Jews, um, as descendants of Abraham. But it was a mark of God's covenant. And so, so anyone, uh, anyone and, and anyone in their children could be circumcised in the Old Testament. It didn't matter if you were descended from Abraham or not. It didn't matter at all. Um, if, if you serve the one true God. Um, it was a sign of God's covenant. It's in fact called God's covenant. Uh, there in, in Genesis 17, God says, This is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Um, in Acts chapter 7, it uh, says, God gave him, gave Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. So it's not just, it wasn't just an outward mark, it wasn't just a mark in the body, it, it was signifying the deepest spiritual realities. It was signifying God's covenant. Well, what did, what did circumcision mean? What did it point to? Uh, a few things. First, it pointed to union and communion with God. It pointed to this relationship with God. Um, the covenant is, is defined there in Genesis 17, verse 7. By these words, that I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. There's that, that promise to be your God and you will be my people, right? You and your children. Um, that's the promise that's repeated over and over again in the New Testament. You give many references. I will be your God. You will, you will be my people. Um, so it's a sign of being brought into this relationship, in, into the family of God. Um, that, that most basic meaning of it was, was union and communion with God, being brought into a relationship, a gracious relationship with God. Um, God dwelling with his people uh, by his grace, despite their sin. Um, secondly, circumcision pointed to cleansing from sin. Um, uh, physically, visibly, as, as an illustration of, of cutting something away, removing something, right? And the word uncircumcised in the Old Testament is used as a synonym for things that are unclean or people that are unrepentant, right? That, that haven't been changed in their hearts, right? Forgiven of their sins. Uh, in Leviticus 26, for example, it, it points to a sinful heart that hasn't uh, repented, hasn't received God's, God's grace. God is speaking of the future here when his people would turn away from him. And he said, if their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends, then I will remember my covenant. So circumcision is, is over and over again clearly about the heart, right? It's not, again, just a, a, an outward mark. Um, it signifies true inner cleansing from sin, that, that it's sin that keeps us apart from God. Right? It's a promise to those, if, if they will come to God in, in humble repentance and faith, that he cleanses from sin. Right? So it's, it's really about the heart and relationship with the Lord. Deuteronomy 10.16, God says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. It's, it's an illustration of, of what's to go on in, in your hearts. Jeremiah 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts because of the evil of your deeds. That is, turn away from your sins. This is, this is God's promise. This is what God has done for you. And so you're to respond in, in turning away from your sin. Um, Paul confirms that basic idea in, in Romans 2 when he says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, 
Right? It never meant anything to descend, be a descendant of Abraham or have circumcision unless it was true in your heart that you, you belong to God. He says, but one is a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. So it's, it signifies cleansing from sin, and then thirdly, it's, a, it's the mark that was simply commanded to be given to those who are in, in the covenant community or part of the Old Testament church, whether they were a converted foreigner or whether they were a, a child uh, of a believer. Uh, there's the mark of those who are in the church, and, and God included in that sign of his covenant, that, that, that sign of his promise, he included whole families uh, and households. Um, he, he gave them this mark of having the benefits of being part of his church. So what were those benefits? They, well, they got to be a part of the covenant community and have the, the word of God and have it explained to them. They had uh, access to the temple and to worship and to, to praying to this God and um, training by godly parents and, and on and on. So the, the threefold meaning of circumcision was that it was a, a sign of this covenant relationship with God, being brought into a relationship with God, a sign of having been cleansed, right, the, the cutting away of sin, uh, and then membership in the, in the visible family of God. So hopefully at this point you're hearing echoes of, of last week, our discussion last week, of the meaning of baptism. It really is parallel to baptism, right? What did we discuss was the meaning of baptism. It points to a relationship with God. You're baptized into the name of this triune God. It signifies our union with Christ in his death and his resurrection, um, in covenant relationship with this God. Baptism points to washing, cleansing from sin. Right? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins points to this, and then it's required of, of all of those in the church. It was, it's the mark of having been washed, of, ha- of belonging to Christ as well. We're baptized into one body, uh, the body of Christ. So it seems clear that uh, just like, for example, the Lord's Supper clearly replaced the Passover, right? the, the lamb that was killed uh, and, and its blood was used as, was fulfilled in Christ who died for us. And so we celebrate that in the Lord's Supper now. In the same way, baptism replaces circumcision. Um, and, and we can see that that is the case because of the parallel in meaning between the two. Uh, but we also simply have that made clear uh, by Paul in Colossians chapter 2, for example. Uh, Here's what Paul says in Colossians 2. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking about Christ. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What What is the circumcision of Christ, Paul is saying? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So baptism is is called the circumcision of God of Christ there in Colossians chapter 2. It's, it's what replaces circumcision as the sign of God's covenant. So, seeing that baptism replaces circumcision, that, that, that they have the same basic meaning as well, when we come to the question in the New Testament of who should receive this sign, who should be baptized, we have to ask, well, who, who, is, who has been given the sign of God's covenant? Who was who given the sign of God's covenant in the Old Testament? Um, who is given the promises and, and included in the church and the benefits of being part of the church 
um, in the Old Covenant as well. And the answer to that is, is believers and their children. That had always been the answer to that. And in the New Testament, is there any evidence or command that the church was to change that practice? That children are now to be considered as outside of the covenant, not a part of the church, as they had been for 2,000 years before. And the answer to that question is no. There's no command or example of, of the idea at all that Christians are that children are now to be considered as somehow outside of God's covenant blessings that they're not privileged to have the, the benefits of being a part of the church. Um, not, not only is there no evidence or teaching or command that children are no longer to be considered part of the church, there, there is some positive evidence in the New Testament that they are to be included and, and given the sign of God's promise still. So I want, secondly, on your outline, to, to turn to that, to, to think a little more about this, the, the silence of the New Testament on this issue and, and, and some of the evidence that we that we ought to baptize our children. Uh, so first of all, again, the silence of the New Testament. Uh, again, there's no, there's no explicit statement one way or the other, like, like we might like there to be, where, where it says you know, only adult believers are to be baptized, or it says uh, infants are to be included uh, in baptism. Uh, there, there's really silence on that question. But I would say that silence, because of the, the assumption that it points to, is a loud silence, in a sense. Right? Uh, clearly, wherever, whatever side Christians are on this issue, you have to concede the New Testament is assuming something about Christians, uh, or children, the children of Christians. Right? Uh, so that silence is a loud silence. The writers of the New Testament clearly assume that this issue is understood already. And the basis of their assumption is that Circumcision, the sign of God's covenant, had always been given to children. God had always included families and children uh, in his promises. Um, John Murray writes this on this topic. God's redemptive actions and revelation are covenantal. And embedded in this covenant is the principle that the infant children of believers are embraced with their parents in the covenant relationship and provision. So again, the question now in the New Testament is, are, are children and families still included in God's covenant relationship, uh, or are they now excluded? Is the church now for parents only? Is really the question before us. Uh, we, we might consider the nature of the new covenant as well to understand what, what this silence, what this assumption might, might point us to. Again, we understand the Bible to, to uh, teach us about one organic people of God, right? The whole way through. One, one unfolding of God's plan of redemption for his church, right? Not two different people, not Israel and a church, but one church, right? Through the whole Bible. Um, there, of course, are, are differences, though, in the way that God related to the people in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant after Christ came and his work was finished. What is one, one major difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? One major difference is that the New Covenant, the New Testament, is less restrictive. Right? There's greater freedom. There, there's greater inclusion. Right? We have freedom from, from all the Old Testament ceremony that, that pointed to Christ. It was an example of Christ. We have freedom from the church being tied down to uh, Jerusalem and to the temple in one, one geographic location. 
um, that there, there, we're freedom from the priesthood and so on. And that the, the, the covenant is broader. Uh, it's less restrictive. It's, it's exploded in a sense and gone around the whole world. And now God's people uh, gather and worship him around the whole world. Right? So would it make sense then for the sign of this new covenant in Christ to be more restrictive, to be less, somehow less inclusive, to now exclude the children of believers? from God's covenant relationship. Right, again, John Murray asks the question, is, is the new covenant in this respect less generous than the Abrahamic covenant? Is there less efficacy as far as infants are concerned? There's a real sense in which this would be a diminishing of the grace of God, the provision of God for families, for, for believing families. Um, again, whichever side Christians fall on this issue, we'd have to concede that if we're not to baptize our children, this would be a 180 degree turn that God had made away from giving, giving the sign of his covenant to the children of believers um, as he had for 2,000 years. And wouldn't that sort of a change have been proclaimed and explained in the New Testament? Uh, there are many, there, there are a number of you know, shocking changes that were hard for the, the Jews to, to swallow and to comprehend in the New Testament, right? That had to be proclaimed and explained over and over again. Uh, I would think that the exclude, the sudden exclusion of their children from the promises of God would be one such thing uh, that would need to be explained. So that silence speaks loudly uh, to the assumption um, that children are still included. Secondly, uh, some further evidence for the inclusion of children um, in this sign is is to consider Jesus and children. Jesus and children. And we read a brief account from Mark chapter 10 this morning uh, where parents bring children to Jesus uh, to be blessed. And Luke's account is a little bit longer. And in Luke's account, he uses the word to describe these children, the word for babies, the word for infants. Um, so they're bringing their babies to Jesus to be blessed, and the disciples think this is a waste of Jesus' time. They shoo them away, and what's, what was Jesus' response? It says he was indignant, right? He rebukes them. He says that to them, to the babies, belongs the kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of God, God belongs to such as them. In Matthew's account, Jesus commands his disciples to receive the little children in his name. What does that mean? To receive the children of these believing parents in the name of Jesus, as if they are belonging to Jesus, right? They are in relationship to Jesus. Now, does Jesus ever speak that way about anyone who is outside of the church, who is not, not in a covenant relationship with God? Jesus never speaks that way. Of someone. He doesn't speak that way of adults who are, who are not living faithfully um, in the Lord. So there's powerful evidence in those interactions with Jesus as well. Thirdly, letter C in your outline is, is uh, 1 Corinthians 7. Just briefly, I won't read the passage here, but Paul is dealing with uh, the issue of marriage and uh, mixed marriage, marriage between a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. And his part of his conclusion is that. The children of even one believing spouse are, he says, holy. Right. So there's uh, they're set apart. There's evidence that children are still to be viewed as in a holy relationship with God in, in some sense, uh, even in that household. Uh, 
Fourthly, letter D on your outline there is, is household baptisms. Household baptisms. So in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, 15, we read about the conversion of Lydia. It says, and after she was baptized, and her whole household as well. So Lydia is converted, and her whole household is baptized. And then in Acts chapter 16, verse 33, just several verses later, the jailer is converted. And it says, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. The jailer is converted, and his whole family is baptized. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul reminds the, the Corinthians in that letter. Uh, he says, I, I baptized also the household of Stephanus. So th- there, are, uh, there are thousands of conversions in the New Testament, right? They're at, at Pentecost, and later we read about thousands coming to Christ and being baptized. We, we only read about 12 of those baptisms. There's only 12 specific baptisms recorded. It's interesting to note that three out of the twelve baptisms recorded are whole households, whole families being baptized uh, all at once. Um, And it's it's very likely, it would seem, that some of those three households included some children, right? Maybe even infants. Um, Even if not, certainly that that 25% of those few baptisms that are recorded in the New Testament represent thousands and thousands more baptisms, um, certainly many, many household baptisms. Um, It's not tenable at all to assume that there were no children uh, or infants among those who were included. Uh, And then fifthly uh, is is Peter's Pentecost sermon that we read from this morning uh, earlier, Peter's Pentecost sermon. just want to come back to that and read again what Peter says here. When the people ask how they should respond, he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children. So I just want you to think about Peter proclaiming baptism to many people here for the first time. Um, as he's proclaiming the Messiah and Savior Jesus, and he's, he's proclaiming baptism as the sign of the new covenant, um, as one pastor put it this way, he said he is either, is he, Peter is either at that moment excommunicating the children of believers, all of them instantly, uh, who have been members of the church throughout all of history to that point, uh, or he's saying that the new sign of God's covenant, his, his promise of the forgiveness of sins, is for them and for their children. Right? And in fact, that's exactly the language he uses. This promise is still, we can imagine him saying, is still for you and your children. Right? Just like circumcision was. Again, either God's covenant continues to embrace families, and the sign of his covenant is given to the children of those families, or now for the first time, instantly and without any explanation at all, Peter says, your children are not to be considered members of the church. They're on the outside. They're, they're now little, little pagans, essentially. So I think that passage brings together powerfully these, these two main um, lines of evidence. Uh, evidence for baptizing children, and is saying, here is the sign, the promise is for you and your children, uh, as well as the, the silence on maybe the, the exact question that we might want to hear an explicit statement on um, that assumes that this promise is still for families and for children. 
So that's God's, God's blessing and His promise and the way that He embraces families throughout, uh, throughout His Word. Well, I want thirdly and, and finally to turn just to a few questions that, that come up uh, along this topic, along the lines of this topic, and um, just touch on them really briefly. Um, if, if you want to talk more about these questions or have other questions, we'd be happy to talk about those um, at any time afterwards. Or in the future, but the first question is <clears throat> simply: Does baptism have the same meaning for adults as it does for infants? Um, does it have the same meaning for adults as for infants? And um, the the clear answer is yes. Right. And the need for the question is because sometimes people want to define it differently um, for adults and for infants because the adults know what's going on and the infants don't. And so we want to say, well, it means this, but when it's the infants, it's, it's the parents' faith. That's, no, it's the exact same thing. Baptism is baptism. It has the same meaning. It is the same promise. Um, and so we want to guard against defending the practice of including families by, by defining it differently. Again, circumcision is a good, a good parallel there. A second question I want to address is, uh, what are we to think about those who grow up and, and who are baptized but don't stay in the church, those who reject their baptism? Right, what do we say of those who are baptized and then uh, prove themselves not to be saved as far as we can tell? Well, the answer is simply that not all who have the sign of God's covenant have this spiritual reality in their heart, ultimately. Right? And that has always been true. Right? We, we, are, we do not have the Roman Catholic view of baptism. That's the simple answer. Baptism does not save. Right? It points to God's promise. It calls us to embrace that promise um, of what God will do. It's not a promise of who we are and, and an infallible way for us to determine who is, who is elect and who is not. Right? But it's, it points to God's promise. And the same issue, the same question exists for those who are baptized as adults, right? Many of them have, have sadly turned away from the faith and, and rejected their baptisms as well. Um, the same was true of circumcision. God commanded it to be given to children. Jacob and Esau were both circumcised. Uh, Jacob grew up to embrace those promises of God for himself, and Esau grew up to reject them. Right, so uh, we, what we know is that God has commanded this for families. This is his way of administering his covenant, his way of um, giving his people grace and growth and faith. We don't know infallibly who God has called inwardly, but we are to administer his covenant outwardly by his command. Um, uh, thankfully, Christians generally, across all opinions on this, have, have no qualms about giving our children all the other means of grace. Right? We treat them like Christians in every other way. We teach them to pray. We give them the, bl the blessing of, of, of worship together. And we tell them that God forgives their sins, and, and on and on and on. Right? So we, we give them this um, means of grace as well, by God's command. And then the final question is, uh, are we then to evangelize our children? Right? Or are we simply just to assume that when they're baptized, the work is done, um, assume that they're saved? Um, this, this question comes really from a, a, maybe a, a common caricature of, um, of our practice of infant baptism. And the answer is uh, absolutely we are to evangelize our children. Right? The, again, baptism is a sign. Um, it's not automatic grace. We're to diligently point them to Christ 
to show them their sin, their need for forgiveness, to teach them their dependence on Christ um, at age-appropriate ways throughout their life, uh, to warn them of the danger of turning away from God when, when they stray. We, we can't ultimately know the heart of our children. Uh, we, we leave that to God, but we point them through their baptisms um, to their need for God's grace always. Uh, we do that, though, with, with great hope. Right? Even with the promises of God. Again, not, not assurances infallibly of, of what will happen. Um, but God's promise is that he will be our God and the God of our children. Right? He, he will be our God from generation to generation. Right? And that, that gives us impetus all the more, I think, to more vigorously and hopefully, uh, in hope, I mean, uh, to evangelize our children, knowing that ordinarily God saves through families. Right, ordinarily, and that it's his work. It's not our work. Um, it's not the child's work. Um, there, there's no uh, guarantee of how God will work in any individual case, but there's a knowledge and hope that this is the way that God ordinarily works, uh, along with his promises. So my encouragement is that we would see the big picture of God's covenant grace, of his dealings with families, um, that we would step back from the, the differences um, on this topic, maybe, and, and just receive God's promise to be faithful generation after generation, um, to use his people uh, to tell the next generation about him, and, and so to build his church. And that's what God's been doing for thousands of years and will continue uh, to do until Christ returns. So praise God for his promises and blessings on families. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again this week for your word and for all that it teaches us. We thank you for the ways that you have uh, embraced and, and blessed and made promises to families uh, throughout all of history, uh, to Abraham and um, to all of those in the church, even until now. Um, pray that we would uh, recognize that and, and um, embrace that, that blessing that would be a great encouragement to us. Uh, to parents here um, in point to continuing to point their children to Christ. We pray for the children who are here that they would um, be mindful of their baptism and what it means and increasingly think of it and identify by it. We pray that that might be true this morning, particularly as we have opportunity to witness this sacrament together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.